Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm back with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac for another key word episode. Listeners will know that we do these from time to time and we review a couple of ABA keywords and how they may be likely to appear on exams. And today we're going to talk about the thyroid questions. Both thyroid for the basic exam will be word number one. And thyroid for the advanced exam will be word number two. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? It's a little weird over Zoom. Yeah, I think the connection is okay, but maybe yeah. we'll see. If we run into problems, we will uh, we'll try to uh, adjust as we go. Okay. All right, okay. where shall we start? Thyroid for the basic. Okay. Yeah, so we're going to start with thyroid for the basic. And so this was actually a tough one because there's a ton of overlap between the basic and advanced for thyroid. So I think what is considered in my mind, more fair game for the advanced actually does come up a little bit on the basic and what's very fair for the basic shows up on the advanced. So it was hard to parse it out specifically. And also if you go to the ABA outline, which they just redid and you actually sent me that email and I looked through it. It's very nebulous. When you go to thyroid, it's like under endocrine and metabolic systems. It just says thyroid. It doesn't parse it out in any way. It doesn't say anatomy, uh, relationships to nerves, nothing. It just says thyroid. Hmm. So I had to do a little bit of digging, and I just I did my best to piece it together to what I think is, is kind of basic versus advanced. But just keep in mind that I think all of this is fair game, and it's very high yield um, just based on sources that I've read. I think there are a lot of questions that come up year to year about the thyroid. 
hypothyroid, hyperthyroid, thyroid storm, thyroid anatomy. So I do think in general, it's a very high yield topic. Great. So, All right. Let's dive in. So if, if I had to do my best guess, it's like what they're going to test in the basic for the thyroid, it would be thyroid function and evaluation of thyroid function. And that's basically every year. Uh, laryngeal anatomy, so cartilages, muscles, innervation. Uh, the recurrent laryngeal nerve, that's a big one in its relationship to the thyroid. And then neck anatomy, 2D ultrasound. Uh, unfortunately, on podcasts, you can't really do images, but I have seen more images in the past few years, especially with neck anatomy and ultrasound, so that's fair game too. So I did put up anatomy questions, but keep in mind that they're just kind of placeholders for what might be an ultrasound visual of the thyroid. So the first key point that I want to make is an anatomy one, and it's that the thyroid gland is located in the anterior neck, and it spans between the C5 and T1 vertebrae. It's an endocrine gland. It's divided into two lobes connected by an isthmus. So these are some type of anatomy questions that you might see on the basic. And the first one is, let's see if you listened and paid attention to my key point, is what is the vertical extension of the thyroid in relation to the vertebrae? All right, so you either... Oh, sorry, no- I have to write the answers. <laughs> so A is C4 to T1, B is C5 to T1, C is C6 to T1, and D is C3 to T1. Yeah, no tricks here. You either know it or you don't. And as you just said, right. it's B, C5 to T1. Yeah. And the reason why they ask this is because there is a lot of anatomy in a very small area. Uh, a lot of like uh, the stellate ganglion, um, which is a little lower, I think around like C7, recurrent laryngeal nerves, uh, cricothyroid membrane, a lot of anatomy that they want you to know. So I think it's good to know where things are at certain cervical levels in relation to others. So this is another type of anatomy question that you might see. The posteromedial aspects of the thyroid lobes are attached to which structure? A, the cricoid cartilage, B, arytenoid cartilages, C, corniculate cartilages, or D, thyroid cartilage? And again, mostly here you're going to have to know it, but you can think a little bit through this. So you know the thyroid cartilage doesn't go all the way around to the back, so maybe a little less likely that things would be posteriorly attached to that. That might be one way to eliminate thyroid cartilage. Ultimately, the answer is cricoid cartilage, but again, yeah. you kind of this is anatomy yeah. stuff you, you're going to have to memorize. Right, and it's a really good distractor because I think you think, oh, thyroid, it's got to be on the thyroid cartilage, but um, there is a, the posterior aspect is actually attached to the cricoid cartilage. Uh, and then one last anatomy question in this anatomy subset is which of the following is most likely to be associated with an increased risk of complication with cannulation of the left? internal jugular vein compared with cannulation of the right internal jugular vein. A, longer recurrent laryngeal nerve. B, lower location of the cupola of the pleura. C, more anterior location of the phrenic nerve. D, presence of the thoracic duct. Right. So again, some things you can eliminate here. So the recurrent laryngeal nerve is longer on the right, not the left, so you can get rid of that one. The um, cupola of the pleura, same thing, other side, so you can get rid of that one. Um, and so that really leaves you with two. And if you know that the thoracic duct is there on the left, right around the junction there of the IJ and the um, innominate, then that makes it pretty likely. And that is indeed, I believe, yeah. the answer. Right. And I actually saw this question several times in pulling questions about thoracic duct and the left IJ. So it is commonly tested. And I think people forget that. And um, we're always thinking about like the left side looping around and going underneath the aortic arch and things like that. But the um, thoracic duct is really just like right behind the IJ on the left side there. Okay, so that leads us to key point two, which is anatomical relationships. 
So the carotid artery, the internal jugular, and the vagus nerve are posterolateral to the thyroid, and the external laryngeal and recurrent laryngeal nerves are posteromedial. And this is important because going into the advanced exam and not so much on the basic, but they're going to ask a lot about like complications of thyroids. And because the thyroid gland is so close to a lot of structures, you can get a lot of postoperative complications. Um, so the next question, so the ABA, they just updated their website. I don't know if you've actually seen it. They've changed the whole um, structure of how you get information about the staged examinations. And it used to be that they had 60 questions that were published for practice for the basic, and then they disappeared for the few years, but now they're back. So if you go to the ABA website, they actually have 60 practice basic questions they also say they have 60 practice advanced questions, but they're the exact same document, and it says basic at the top. So this question is actually from the ABA website. It's from their bank of 60 questions. Of 60 questions, five of them had five thyroid-esque questions involved. So um, it's a 32-year-old woman, sustains an injury to the left recurrent laryngeal nerve during thyroidectomy. Which of the following is the most likely postoperative finding? A, a deduction of the left vocal cord at rest. B, aphonia, C, aspiration caused by glottic incompetency, or D, impaired coughing. And that's a tough one. I think, you know, as you said, these come up a lot, and so you get, you see them a lot, and you know that if you have injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, you do end up with a adduction of that vocal cord at rest. Um, But it's, you know, a lot of those things make sense. Um, that you would think about. So you want to be careful and really, it, this does come up. And, and if you know that, it does tend to be that answer. They, they're looking to know that you know that injury causes a deduction. Right. So the way I remember it is the recurrent laryngeal nerve relaxes. So recurrent relaxes the vocal cords. So if you cut the recurrent, you don't have anything to relax it. You just have tension there. So that's why you get a deduction. And it is a very common test question. And you see it a bunch in looking for the advanced exam. Did I lose you? Oh, no, you're there. Um, in looking at the advanced exam, because it's considered like a post-op complication, but it's also considered anatomy for the basic. So you're going to see it on both tests. But this is where it comes up for the basic. Um, another question, and I put this in because I think it's always good to review these nerves because they come up time and time again. Coughing that occurs during awake intubation is prevented by local anesthetic block of which of the following nerves? A, glossopharyngeal, B, hypoglossal, C, recurrent laryngeal and glossopharyngeal, D, recurrent laryngeal and superior laryngeal, E, superior laryngeal and glossopharyngeal. So, you know, you hopefully know that you have to get the, to prevent that coughing, uh, you need to get the epiglottis. And so um, you need to get the cords in the epiglottis. And if you know that the, you really need the recurrent laryngeal to get the cords, then you can get rid of anything that doesn't have that in it, which just leaves you C and D. And then you have to just know that it's going to be superior laryngeal to get that epiglottis and, the, and uh, recurrent right. laryngeal for the cords. Yeah. And glossopharyngeal is like the tongue, like the back of the tongue. So you could get some like, gagging if you don't have the glossopharyngeal, but it shouldn't cause coughing in the way that they mean coughing, which is like sputtering because you've hit the cords or you're near the cords. So the third key point is actually has to do with thyroid hormones. So moving on from adamine, the thyroid gland secretes thyroid hormones T4 and T3, which are major regulators of cellular metabolic activity, and they're necessary for proper cardiac, pulmonary, and neurologic function. So this is just like a basic question. Um, you know, speaking with Bob Geyser, who was one of the 
brains behind the basic, there is a fair chunk of this test that's like very USMLE like. And so I think a lot of the stuff you learned in med school that was on the USMLE is very fair game, especially when it comes to endocrinology. So this is just like kind of one of those basic knowledge um, that maybe not be 100% anesthesia, but you need to understand it to understand like how you have anesthetic implications. So which of the following accurately describes thyroid hormone? A, it's released from the anterior pituitary. B, it binds to receptors on the outside of the cell. C, it's derived from cholesterol. D, it binds to receptors on the inside of the cell. Yeah, and so the answer here is D. Um, and some of that you just have to know. Um, I'm not sure, Jillian, do you have any tricks for kind of ruling some of those out? So I don't have tricks for ruling them out, but a pretty good standardized exam trick is if you have two answers that are opposite of the other, it's usually one of those. So you could, if you really had to guess on this and you didn't know anything about anything, you could probably go between B and D. That's, That's a good usually tip. how standardized tests work. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things that you need to know. And um, I'm going to talk about this in the next key point, but do you remember what it's derived from? Uh, so what thyroid hormone is not, derived from? Right. Not cholesterol. Well, it's- right. Well, you know, it's got iodine in it. Um, and then I think tyrosine, right? Tyrosine, right. Yeah. And I think they put cholesterol there because that goes, I don't know why they put cholesterol there. Maybe because cholesterol's cross membranes easier. And so if you know it's in, but anyway. All right, so that leads us to the key point four, which is about thyroid hormone production. I know this is a little bit more granular than we normally do, but I have seen these questions come up fairly regularly. They're kind of, so when, when these tests are put together, about 80 to 85% of the test comes like from the, the highlighted points in the textbook, like the bulleted points, about 10 to 15% of it is like just really nitpicky kind of trivia. And they do it this way on purpose. And it's to reward those like super studiers and people who know everything about everything. So there is part in the science of putting this together. These uh, really kind of what you think might be unfair, but out, the, out, out there, very specific questions. And I've seen a lot of them come from thyroid, especially thyroid hormone synthesis. So that's why I'm going a little bit more granular here. But So the fourth key point is that the production of thyroid hormone consists of the uptake and concentration of iodide in the thyroid gland, where it's bound to tyrosine residues to form various iodotyrosines. So that's one question I've seen is what amino acids, tyrosine. And then after organification, you have monoiodotyrosine or diiodotyrosine, and that's coupled enzymically by thyroid peroxidase to form either T3 or T4, which are then attached to the thyroglobulin protein and stored as colloid. So questions I've seen them ask before is what enzyme is used to form T3 or T4? So it's thyroid peroxidase. I've also had them ask what protein is T3 or T4 bound to in colloid, and that's thyroglobulin. Um, And then for release of T3 and T4, it's through the proteolysis of the thyroglobulin and diffusion into the circulation. So I just put that out there because I couldn't find specific questions, but I know I've seen them in the past enough that I wanted to just make those points. Um, And then the next point I wanted to make, which is key point five, is that thyroid stimulating hormone, which is released from the anterior anterior pituitary, is responsible for maintaining the uptake of iodide and the proteolytic release of thyroid hormone. And excess iodine inhibits the synthesis and secretion of thyroid hormone, and circulating thyroid hormone inhibits TRH and TSH secretion. So it's part of the very common feedback loops that you see in endocrinology. 
And I think if you're going to get questions about this, they like to ask about like tests, like euthyroid, hypothyroid, what are you going to test? So this is a very standard question that you're going to see. A 27-year-old obese woman is scheduled to undergo foot surgery under general anesthesia. She underwent a subtotal thyroidectomy three years ago and takes levothyroxine, which is Synthroid. Which of the following lab tests would be the most useful in evaluating whether this patient is euthyroid? A is total plasma thyroxine, which is T4. B is total plasma triiodothyronine, which is T3. C is thyroid-stimulating hormone, TSH. D is resin triiodothyronine uptake. And E is radioactive iodine uptake. Right. And so hopefully people know if they've done any clinical time that when we want to know someone's thyroid status, we check their TSH. And so that's going to be what's going to give you the best idea of their uh, whether they're euthyroid. Right. And I always say, if you're in, when in doubt on the thyroid, pick TSH. It's almost right. always the right answer. Yeah. Um, so just for a review for the basic, my guess is they're going to um, most likely test anatomy. So like we talked about location, relationships, nerves, T3, T4, TSH, and proper lab testing, and then the recurrent laryngeal nerve, especially damage with thyroid surgery. And then you might see basics of hypo and hyperthyroidism. I think that's also fair game, but I, I lumped those into the advanced category just for today's podcast. So moving on to thyroid for the advanced exam. All right, let's Are we do okay it. To move on? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So the thyroid for the advanced exam, the ABA outline is much more granular. It gives you a lot more information than just thyroid. So it says they want you to know about hyperthyroidism. So metabolic and circulatory effects, anesthetic management, thyroid storm. They want you to know about hypothyroidism, metabolic and circulatory effects, myxedema, coma, substitution therapy, anesthetic implications. And that complications of surgery. So hypocalcemia, recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, diagnosis and treatment. And if you want to know what's tested, if you look back through like old tests, like open anesthesia tells you the years that this is tested. So hyperthyroidism and thyrotoxicosis, which is like early thyroid storm, is tested almost every year, 08 or 9, 2010, 11, 12, 13, 15. Thyroid storm um, is another common one. So 2008, 2011, Thyroid surgery and recurrent laryngeal nerve monitoring was 2014, 17, and 20. Complications from thyroidectomies, 2014, 16, 17, and 18. And then labs that you need to draw with hypothyroidism was tested in 2017. And I just want to say one more time that I do think some of these probably come up in the basic to some degree, but it's hard to really know because they just wrote thyroid, <laughs> which right. I'm going to have to talk to Bob Geyser about that one. because Get some more granularity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so the first key point is that hyperthyroidism results from the exposure of tissues to excessive amounts of thyroid hormone. And the most common cause is Graves' disease. Um, you'll have low TSH, high T3, T4. And we know, like, learning from med school, the manifestations are, I'll let you do them. I've done all So the you'll see <laughs> weight loss, diarrhea, muscle weakness. Uh, you can actually see increased ejection fraction, tachycardia. Um, so those are, I think, the things we think about. And the most important goal prior to surgery is you actually want patients to be euthyroid. For people with mild hyperthyroidism, it's probably not as important, but if you have moderate or severe hyperthyroidism, it is very important. And we'll talk more about it with thyroid storm. But if you have a, a hyperthyroidism that's under that's not under control, you are put at risk for thyroid storm, which has a very high morbidity and mortality. So that's why you really want patients to be euthyroid before surgery. 
So this question is just says hyperthyroidism, A, can be identified by high levels of T3, T4, and TSH. B, is most commonly caused by Graves' disease. C, increases minimal alveolar concentration values. And D, thyroid surgery is usually the first-line treatment. So you should be able to get this. You may remember from medical school that Graves' disease is the most common cause of hyperthyroidism, so that would be easy. But even if you didn't, you know TSH and T3 and T4 have an inverse relationship, so you can get rid of exactly. A. Right. You may or may not know, but I always find it interesting that uh, hyper and hypothyroidism have no effect on MAC. So uh, right. that's if you can just eliminate a lot of answer choices just by knowing that fact. Yeah. And then it yeah. kind of makes sense. You're not going to go to surgery as a first-line treatment. You know there are medicines out there that you try for these things first. Right. And that's a really good point about MAC value because on almost every question regarding hypo and hyperthyroidism, intraoperative management, they put that in there. It's a really good distractor answer. And if you don't know that, it can, I think it throws a lot of people off. Yeah. So the next key point is actually the uh, medical treatment of hyperthyroidism. There are really two major drugs that are in use. One is propylthiouracil, more commonly referred to as PTU. And then there's methimazole. And uh, they both inhibit the organification of iodide and the synthesis of thyroid hormone, and PTU also decreases the peripheral conversion of T4 to T3. And that's important because historically we've always been taught and I've always learned that T3 is actually the more active form of the hormone. So you want to decrease the amount of T3 you have because it helps slow it down there. So this is a question about like the medical management and med- um, that you'll see. So methimazole reduces serum concentration of T3 primarily by which of the following mechanisms? A, accelerating the peripheral metabolism of T3. B, inhibiting the proteolysis of thyroid binding globulin. C, inhibiting the secretion of TSH. D, inhibiting the uptake of iodide by cells in the thyroid. And E, preventing the addition of iodine to tyrosine residues on thyroid globulin. Yeah, this is one of those things I think you just have to know. And as you, you said in your key point summary, it is E, it prevents the addition of the iodine to the tyrosine. Yeah, Right. I don't know if you didn't know that, if you could really intuit or parse that out. I don't really have any great tricks for that one, but it is a commonly tested drug as well as PTDU. So another question here. Okay. So I put this in there and they eliminated K-type questions. Do you remember what K-type questions are? Yep. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So they eliminated them like two years before I had to take the board exam. Thank goodness. But I found this one and I I put it in there. It's a little bit unfair, but we're going to do it. So which of the following are considered to be ablative therapy for thyrotoxicosis due to Graves' disease? So one is thyroidectomy. Two is methimazole. Three is um, 131 iodine, so radioactive iodine. And four is propanolol. And now you're going to get A, B, C, and D. So A is one, two, and three are correct. B is one and three are correct. C is two and four are correct. And D is only four is correct, which I love because I haven't done a K-type question in forever and I hated them. And here I am putting it out there. (laughs) Yep. But this one you can think through pretty pretty well. Yes, you think you ablative yeah. therapy, right? So ablative therapy right. is clearly not propranolol, which is just a beta blocker. And you know you can probably intuit that it's not methimazole, which we just talked about how that works. So when you think of ablation, getting rid of completely, thyroidectomy obviously is going to be, so it's got to have one in it. And then radioactive iodine certainly right. sounds pretty definitive, radioactive. Right, right. So you, you yeah. should be able to get there that it's right. going to be one and three, which is answer choice right. B. Yeah. So it's a good learning question. K-types are no longer there. 
they were so, so hard. I remember studying and using those K types and just dying. So I was like, I hate this because you could know one or two things, but if you didn't know the third, you could get the whole question wrong. All right, so the next key point is that hypothyroidism is due to inadequate T3 and T4. It's most commonly due to autoimmune, um, with the exception, it also can be iatrogenic. What's the word when physicians cause it? Is it iatrogenic? In that, like if someone who's had um, radiation to the neck yeah. or thyroid. Iatrogenic, yeah. Right, iatrogenic, yeah. So outside of iatrogenic causes, the most common is autoimmune. Signs and symptoms are lethargy, cold intolerance, bradycardia, decreased cardiac output. Uh, interestingly enough, there has not ever been shown to have serious complications in patients going to the OR with mild to moderate hypothyroidism. So it's not as important to aggressively treat hypothyroidism going into the OR as hyperthyroidism, but it's still nice to be as close to euthyroid as possible. So again, getting back to these lab values, a patient suffering from signs and symptoms consistent with Hashimoto's thyroiditis has blood samples taken for lab analysis which of the following sets of results would be most consistent with this diagnosis? So A is high T3, high T4, high TSH. B is high T3, high T4, low TSH. C is low T3, low T4, low TSH. D is low T3, low T4, high TSH. And E is low T3, high T4, normal TSH. Right. And so th- with these, actually, I think a good thing to do before you even look at the answer choices is think in your head what you're looking for so you don't get thrown off. And you just know that if it's hypothyroidism, you're going to have high TSH. So you just look at the two that have high TSH. And then the question is just whether your T3 and T4 are high or low. And again, we've said before that there is an inverse relationship. So you're looking for D, low T3, low T4, high TSH. I think the hardest part of this question is actually knowing that Hashimoto's thyroiditis is hypothyroid and not hyperthyroid. Uh, right. Because so, if you didn't know that, then you'd be toast. Yeah, That's true. Done. You definitely couldn't right, get so this right if you didn't know that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so a 65 year old man. Oh, and this was the question that was on those 60 questions on the ABA website. It's interesting because they put it under basic, but I thought it was more of an advanced exam question, which is why I say, I think some of these are fair for the basic also. So this is from the ABA website itself. Um, so a 65 year old man with hypothyroidism is undergoing emergency appendectomy. Which of the following findings is most likely in this patient? A decreased MAC for isoforine. B, decreased myocardial contractility, C, decreased response to catecholamines, and D, increased baroreceptor reflexes. Great. So there's your MAC again. You can get rid of that, as we said, no effect on MAC. And so that leaves you three. We talked about contractility being increased in hyperthyroidism, and therefore can be decreased in hypothyroidism. So that is going to be the answer. And the other two just aren't aren't really going to play a role. Right. So this next question is about medical treatment of hypothyroid, which is what hormone is produced in the peripheral tissues when Synthroid, which is levothyroxine, is administered? A, methimazole, B, T3, C, T4, D, TSH, E, FSH. Right. So uh, you mentioned before, I think, that uh, levothyroxine is T4, um, and so you're going to convert it to T3. I think that's what they're getting at, right? Yep, exactly. Uh, another, so this, I like this question. Uh, so it's a patient with moderate hypothyroidism and unstable angina requires urgent coronary artery bypass grafting. Which of the following is most appropriate before proceeding with the operation? A, initiation of epinephrine infusion. B, intramuscular administration of a barbiturate. C, intravenous administration of T3. D, intravenous administration of T4. E, treatment of myocardial ischemia. This is like one of those questions. It's, uh, you know, a patient has no pulse and they give you all these choices. And one of them is 
start chest compressions, right? It's always, right. always that. So again, here, there's two things going on. One is if a patient's having acute myocardial ischemia and needs emergent or, or very urgent uh, surgery for it, you can't wait or they won't survive. And so that's one, which is going to push you toward just saying treat the myocardial ischemia. But the other thing is, as you mentioned, mild to moderate hypothyroidism doesn't need treatment before surgery. And so I think that's what they're getting at here too. And so the answer would be E, go ahead and treat the myocardial ischemia. Right. So I think why I like this question is twofold. There are a subset of people who don't really read the full question. They just kind of skim. So I think if you were skimming this question, you said moderate hypothyroidism going to the OR, what do I do? And you kind of didn't really pay attention to the middle, which does happen. You could have gone for like C or D. Um, and I do like that they're also testing your ability. Like you need to triage. Like, okay, the hypothyroidism is definitely secondary. So I thought that question was good. Um, so this is a question about anesthesia with hypothyroidism is, which of the following is most likely in a 30-year-old patient with untreated hypothyroidism? So A, cardiac arrhythmias with ketamine administration. B, decreased ventilatory response to hypoxia. C, hypoglycemia. D, increased MAC of inhalational anesthetics. And E, peripheral vasodilation. So you, again, can get rid of the MAC because it doesn't affect MAC. So that's nice, yep. one thing that can go. Um, and then, you know, I actually, I, this is not something that I remember well, but I think that you do get a decreased ventilatory response to hypoxia um, as opposed to the other things. So I think that's the answer, though. That is something I think you just have to know. Yeah, and even though you do have metabolic changes, don't think hypothyroidism causes hyper hypoglycemia. Um, and I actually, I'll have to look and... People who listen to this can tell me if I'm wrong. I'll have to look up the, the peripheral vasodilation. I actually don't remember if it's just neutral or if you actually get some vasoconstriction. I don't off the top of my head. Do you? Yeah, not something yeah, I remember. I don't know either. I'm guessing that I don't think that you get an effect on vasodilation with, um, yeah. with hypothyroidism. I, I just, uh, you, you, if you did, you'd have profound hypotension, and I don't think that happens. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Okay, so the next key point is uh, key point four, which is thyroid storm. So thyroid storm is a life-threatening exacerbation of hyperthyroidism that most commonly develops in the undiagnosed or untreated hyperthyroid patient because of the stress of surgery or if you're actively operating on a hyperthyroid patient and kind of fiddling with the thyroid and it releases a lot of thyroid hormone at once. So the manifestations can include hyperthermia, tachycardia, dysrhythmias, you can see myocardial ischemia, CHF, agitation, confusion in an awake patient. And I think it's really, really important to put these things together in a differential diagnosis. And every time you hear them, lump them together. So I say always put together malignant hyperthermia, thyroid storm, pheochromocytoma, and NMS together, those four, because they all manifest very similarly. So you really have to pay attention to the details of what's going on with the case to parse out what it is. And then also of the other three are sepsis, hypoxia, and light anesthesia. So in my head, I, anytime I'm thinking thyroid storm, I always go through my list to make sure I'm not missing any other things. Um, but I have seen them give questions where you have to really figure out, is this thyroid storm or is this filling the hypothermia? Because they can present very similarly in the beginning. Uh, so here's a question. A 40-year-old woman with Graves' disease is undergoing thyroidectomy with isoflurane, nitrous, and oxygen. During surgical manipulation of the thyroid, her temperature increases to 38.5, her heart rate is 160, and her blood pressure is 150 over 100. What is the most 
appropriate initial treatment. A, administer dantrolene, B, administer potassium, C, administer propanolol, D, administer PTU, E, increase the concentration of isoflurane. Yeah, so, you know, I think they're getting at a few things here. Uh, they're suggesting, could this be light anesthesia? So, in other words, do you want to just de- uh, increase the it's, ISO? Right, exactly. Um, she's a, on 1% uh, ISO plus nitrous. So she's pretty, she's pretty deep. Um, she's at, you know, that's that combination. 1% ni- ISO is a, is a probably cl- very close to a MAC for her plus 60% nitrous. She's probably at, you know, 1.3, 1.4 MAC. So the chances that she's light are low. Um, and so that's probably unlikely. You know she's got Graves' disease, so she's at high risk for it being hyperthyroidism or thyroid storm. And you want something that's going to act very quickly. So while propylthiouracil is a treatment for hyperthyroidism, uh, it's not going to you know have as fast an effect as something else like propranolol, which is going to treat that 160 beat per minute heart rate um, and is also going to help with the thyroid storm itself. Dantrolene, not a treatment for thyroid storm. And right. potassium iodide, you certainly don't want to give um, iodine in this case. Right. But if they took out Graves' disease and the surgical manipulation of the thyroid, and you just had this increase in temperature, this increase in heart rate, this increase in blood pressure, I might be going down an MH route rather than a thyroid route. So they will give you clues. They have to. You can't parse it out any other way. So look for the, the clues about are they, you know, do they have an underlying thyroid condition? Are they operating on the thyroid? Are they manipulating it at the time? They'll help to let you know if it's, um, like I said, thyroid storm, MH, or VO, or MMS. And actually, so I said you wouldn't. Treatment. No, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I was moving on. So are you ready? Oh, to no, I was just going to say, I said you wouldn't want to give iodide. I think it's that you wouldn't want to give potassium iodide, right? Right, right, right. I think the, um, so the, the treatment next- for hyperthyroidism uh, or thyroid storm does include iodide, but usually in the form of sodium iodide. Sodium iodide, yeah, exactly. Which gives us our next key point, good segue. It's, <clears throat> sorry, is the treatment of thyroid storm, which is another common question, is if you do suspect thyroid storm, the treatment is IV fluids and then beta blockers. You can do propanolol or esmol or esmol drip. Sodium iodide, PTU, hydrozone, and then um supportive measures like cooling blankets, just like you would in MH. I always tell my residents, if you're in doubt, call endocrinology. I mean, you'll never see endocrinologists run faster than when you tell them you think you have someone with thyroid storm and they will tell you all the doses and how to give these medications. We had a thyroid storm patient on OB, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, and we called them to help manage and they were like thrilled. I was not thrilled. <laughs> they were thrilled, but they were very, very nice about helping me manage. And you can, even if you like are in a center where they don't have in-house, they can call in and like help guide your management because it's not something you're going to see commonly. And so I wouldn't expect you to keep the doses in your head for the uh, iodide and the PTU. So. Yeah. And I don't want to keep harping on this, but I just don't want to give people the wrong information. I'm not sure if it has to be sodium iodide or not. I mean, I think that's what's more common, but it's possible potassium iodide would be would be a, a, you know a different way to administer that iodide that would work. Well, the prior question about potassium about getting hyper. Oh, potassium. Yeah, I mean, I'd be worried about having a high potassium level. Right. I think you don't want to necessarily right. get potassium if it's not needed, yeah. especially if it's going to be in large quantity. And then right. I think the other the other thing with that initial right. question, that last question was just that propranolol is going to be your first okay. choice, not that you wouldn't do those other things. 
Exactly. Exactly. That's a very good point. Yeah. That's going to be like the first thing you do because you're going to have it in the OR and it's easy to do. But according to Bearish, which I actually do have open in front of me, it's sodium iodide. And if you did want to know the dose, it's 250 milligrams IV Q6H. And PTU is, uh, you can give it down an NG tube, 200 to 400 milligrams, and then 50 to 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone, and then 10 to 40 milligrams of propanolol or esmol infusion. Great. All right. So here's a question about thyroid storm. A 38-year-old woman with hyperthyroidism is undergoing open reduction and internal fixation of a fractured humerus with isoforine anesthesia. Interoperatively, her heart rate increases to 120 with occasional premature ventricular contractions. The most appropriate therapy at this time is to A, discontinue isoforine, B, administer adrophonium, C, administer esmolol, D, administer lidocaine, E, administer PTU. So similar question here, uh, tachycardia, possible thyroid storm, you want to give a beta blocker first, and yeah. so esmolol right. is going to be your first choice. Right. I think it's one of those things, they, they ask that commonly because they just really want you to know that, that if you suspect, suspect thyroid storm, your first thing should be a beta blocker. Um, it doesn't matter, esmolol or panolol. It's just like MH dantrolene. They really want that drilled in your head. So if you do suspect thyroid storm, even if it's not, you can't go wrong if someone's heart rate's 120 to 160, giving some esmolol. Um, so here's another question, which I thought was interesting. I, I really still don't understand the thought behind this question, but it's an interesting one. Is Which of the following treatments should not be used in the management of thyroid storm? A, aspirin, B, cold crystalloid, C, cholesteramine, D, dexamethasone, E, esmolol. Right. So you kind of have to just know that aspirin actually can worsen thyroid storm because it causes more displacement of thyroid hormone from the thyroglobulin to which it's bound. So you get more free thyroid hormone and therefore can worsen the disease. So you just got to know you wouldn't give aspirin. Right. But I think it's a funny question because I don't think in the middle of thyroid storm, they're like, well, let's give you some aspirin. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, I guess, well, where you might, right. Is let's say you saw, let's say someone got tachycardic, they had some baseline coronary artery disease and you saw some ST changes, right? Or even ST elevations, you might then. That's the thought. Actually, that's really smart. You know, I gave a lot of thought as to why they put that in there. And now I understand it. Thank you, Jed. Now I understand this question better. No so, problem. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, so key point six is there are many complications that can happen from thyroid surgery. And the timing is really, really important. So immediately, if you have bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve damage, you're going to know that. That happens like after extubation. Um, usually if you're in the PACU and something happens, it's a rapidly expanded hematoma. And then if it's two to three days later, it's usually hypocalcemia. So if you're getting in like a post-operative thyroid question, really pay attention to the timing of these. And there are a bunch of questions like this out there. And um, if you see any question on the advance about thyroid, my money is going to be on a complication. So here are some questions about complications. So a 50-year-old patient undergoes subtotal thyroidectomy for Graves' disease. In the immediate post-operative period, he has, he has market hoarseness and no strider. The most likely cause of the hoarseness is trauma to the A, external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve, B, internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve, C, recurrent laryngeal nerve, D, glossopharyngeal nerve, E, vocal cords. So I think you have to know here that the the most likely to be damaged and that would cause that hoarseness is the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Right. It's the most commonly injured nerve in thyroid surgery, which is why we monitor for it now with the NIMS tubes. Um, 
And this is just one-sided. So if it was two-sided, you would have stridor and difficulty breathing, but just one-sided would be coarseness. Um, most ENTs now actually look um, at the cords before you extubate or immediately after extubation to make sure that they're moving uh, to see that they don't have RLN damage. All right, next question. If both recurrent laryngeal nerves were severed during a difficult thyroidectomy for cancer, the most likely finding would be A, paralysis of the cricothyroid muscles, B, cadaveric positioning of the true vocal cords, C, anesthesia of both sides of the epiglottis, D, bilateral pure adductor vocal cord paralysis. And so I think what's key here is that it's severed completely, not injured, right? So if you had injury uh, as opposed to severing, you could have D, pure adductor paralysis. But because they're severed completely, you're going to end up with that cadaveric positioning of the true vocal cords. Right. Right. So the answer is B there. Uh, so another complication here. So a 28-year-old woman undergoes the thyroidectomy. The left recurrent laryngeal nerve is transected during the procedure, which one of the following findings is most likely common theme here, right? A, normal voice, B, aphonius, C, hoarseness, D, expiratory striders, E, inspiratory strider. Right. And so as we just talked about, you're, you're going to get hoarseness from this. Yeah, one-sided. So next one, a 54-year-old female is undergoing a total thyroidectomy under general anesthesia. The patient is awakened in the OR, mouth and pharynx suction, and after intact laryngeal reflexes are demonstrated, the endotracheal tube is removed. Two days later, the anesthesiologist is consulted because the patient has severe strider and upper airway obstruction. The most likely cause of airway obstruction in this patient is A, damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, B, damage to the superior laryngeal nerve, C, tracheomalacia, D, hypocalcemia, E, hematoma. And the key here is they're telling you it's two days later. So whenever you think of a complication that is delayed, you want to think about hypocalcemia because, of course, when they take the thyroid, they can also end up taking, and often do, the parathyroid. And so you can end up with severe hypocalcemia, which can cause airway obstruction. And so that's going to be your case here in answer choice D. Yeah. And it usually develops within 24 to 96 hours after a total thyroid. Um, So again, just pay attention to timing. So this is another question. Each of the following postoperative complications of thyroid surgery can result in upper airway obstruction, except A, tracheomalacia, B, tetany, C, cervical hematoma, D, bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, and E, bilateral superior laryngeal nerve injury. Right. And so the, uh, it's the recurrent laryngeal nerve, as we said, not the superior laryngeal nerve that's going to do it. And so what the one that won't cause uh, upper airway obstruction would be the, would E, the bilateral superior laryngeal nerve injury. The key here is, bilater- again, it's bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, which can cause upper airway obstruction as opposed to transection, right, which is what we saw in that other question, which... While it can cause some degree, it's not going to cause complete obstruction of the airway. Right. And you can, we talked about the cervical hematoma. It usually happens in the PACU. That can push up against the trachea and cause strider. Tetany is usually one to three days later from hypocalcemia. And tracheomalacia is actually from, you had like a big tumor that was growing around the thyroid and is actually kind of stenting it open. So when you remove the tumor and then extubate, the trachea just kind of like collapses. So you can get strider there too. Um, so another one, again, pay attention to the timing, is a 36-year-old woman develops acute airway obstruction 24 hours after total thyroidectomy. The most likely cause is 
and I probably don't need to read the answer choices, but they are A, bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, B, unilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, C, hypocalcemia, D, subglottic edema, E, tracheomalacia. Yeah, and as we said, delayed hypocalcemia is going to be your, your most likely cause there. Right. So to review for the advanced exam, what I think would be most likely tested on the advanced exam is hypo and hyperthyroidism, especially how they affect your anesthetic plan, the recognition and treatment of thyroid storm, and then post-operative complications of thyroid surgery and pay attention to timing. And that would include, like we said, um, hypocalcemia, rapidly expanding hematoma, recurrent laryngeal nerve damage, those three. Great. All right. Jillian, super helpful. Thank you for going through the thyroid for the basic and advanced. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. You've always got good ones. What have you got for us today? Oh, gosh. I have to think about it now. So I really enjoy cooking, and I people who like to cook probably know, I think his full name is Kenji Lopez-Alt. Am I saying that right? He wrote a book, a cookbook that won a James Beard Award called the food lab. And he has a really great website called serious eats. I don't know if you've ever used any of his recipes, No, but he has this chocolate chip cookie recipe that uses brown butter. So you like, you take the butter and you brown it and then you cool it before using it in your cookies. It is life changing. Wow. (laughs) So brown butter, chocolate chip cookies. Amazing. Brown butter, chocolate chip cookies. And the, uh, who's the, um, who's the chef again? It's Kenji Lopez, um, and his website is Serious Eats. Oh, it's so good. Oh, that that is I'm something like, we're going to have to try in my house. Yeah, um, they're really good. I'll try to find a link and put it in the show notes. Um, well, on a much less appetizing and exciting note, I'll say mine uh, is, is not to eat, but um, if you've got kids, <laughs> uh, especially kids in the kind of, you know, 7 to 10 range, uh, there's a great Netflix show called The Dragon Prince. It is incredibly well done. So my my kids and, and my wife and I watched the show Avatar The Last Airbender, which I recommended on a prior show, and it's great. And we were looking for something to follow that up with. It's a family show, and, and my wife found this. It was really highly rated. It's called The Dragon Prince. It's on Netflix, and it is great. It's great for the kids love it, and it's really well done, and we also enjoy it. It's funny. There's layers for adults and layers for kids. Um, it's really, they do a great job of kind of representing all different kinds of, um, adventures and humor. And it's, uh, it's really, really well done. So highly recommend the dragon prince as well. All right, Jillian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, no problem. And let me know guys, what you think about those cookies. I just sent Jed the recipe. Nice. I can't wait. All right. Take it easy. All right. Take care. All right. Always great to have Dr. Isaac back on the show. Hopefully everyone found that useful, especially those studying for their exams. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, acrac.com. You can leave a comment and a rating. It's very possible that we got some of that wrong. If you identify it, let us know. We'll put a note on the website. Leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Also, 
You can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC and make a donation anytime or look up Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. We really appreciate and a big thank you to anyone who has made a donation or become a patron. Thank you for your generosity. Big thank you, as always, to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, and to our social media manager, April Liu. And, of course, a shout-out and thank you to Dr. Kimi Akashkuli, who still helps out even as she is doing her intern year. And, of course, our original ACRAG music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG Podcast and Dr. Jillian Isaac, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotion promotional offer not available in washington dc swimsuit check sunscreen check phone charger check Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.